So we are looking at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and I have titled this, The Joy and the Freedom of Forgiveness. The Joy and the Freedom of Forgiveness. Let me begin with just a snapshot in history. In World War, when World War II was over, the armistice had been signed in Europe and in Japan. Hostilities had ceased. But under the leadership of General MacArthur, the Allies had bypassed many islands on the Pacific in their drive towards Japan. Now, even though the war was over, tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers were still occupying those islands, hiding in the jungles and mountains of the Pacific. The Americans went to the islands and said, the war is over. Peace has been declared. Lay down your arms. Come out. But the Japanese thought it was a trick. So MacArthur had the emperor of Japan make recordings, which they broadcast with loudspeakers into the jungles. The war is over. Peace has been declared. Lay down your arms. Come out. And only then did the Japanese soldiers trickle out. The last soldier came out in March of 1974, 29 years later after the war was over. They asked him why. His answer was, I was afraid. I was afraid. This morning, I have good news for you, children of God. Good news for us to celebrate together the joyous grace of God's forgiveness that he offers to us freely when we come out of hiding, when we come out of our guilt and our shame and we bring our burdens, the burdens of our sins to him in prayer and come to the light and experience his mercy and his grace that he has to offer for you and me. One theologian says that there are two basic problems that confront all human beings everywhere. The first is our sense of guilt about the past. And the second is our anxiety about the future. And Psalm 32 addresses both of them directly. It addresses the guilt of our past and the anxiety of the future. In this psalm, we're going to see assurance of forgiveness. Assurance of forgiveness. And we're going to see assurance of guidance. God forgives our past and he guides us into the future, into his good plans, through difficult waters, through difficult times. And so he addresses some of our greatest problems, some of the greatest problems that humanity has faced since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden against God. The effects of our sin, guilt, shame, and fear. From the very beginning, it was mankind's response and disobedience to God to hide from God when God went walking in the garden. Man hid from God in, in man's shame and guilt and fear. Man tried to, to make some coverings to cover up their nakedness and cover up their shame. But God went searching for humanity. And he does the very same thing today. He is looking for those who are hiding in their guilt and their shame, who are trying to fix their greatest problem in their own strength, leaning on their own understanding with their own resources. And God's like, I have what you need. Come to the light. Where are you? Where are you today? Can you identify with this this Japanese soldier who was hiding for years, who had years of his life wasted because he didn't know about the mercy and the peace that was being offered to him if he would just come with surrendered arms. Psalm 32. Go ahead and open up there. This psalm is called a mascal, which means it's, it's a... Um, and theologians think that it's a skillful song of instruction, a contemplative poem. 
the word means instruction, and it's translated in that way in verse 8. However, maskul may be a, a musical direction, meaning the meaning of which is still unknown. This psalm is used by Jewish friends at the annual day of atonement. And on the church calendar, it's a sign to be read on Ash Wednesday. Paul quoted from this psalm in Romans chapter 4 as a part of his argument for salvation by grace alone apart from the works of the law. And so this psalm is loaded with, with gospel truth here. When Martin Luther was asked about which, what is the best psalm or the greatest, according to Martin Luther, he said uh, that the Psalmi Paulini, the, the Pauline Psalms, which he considered to be Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 130, Psalm 143, which were all re, uh, re, uh, referred to as theologians by penitential psalms. And so this is a beautiful psalm for us to look at this morning, especially those of us who live on this side of the cross. One that Paul gleaned from when he was arguing a gospel truth that God forgives sins by faith. And he makes sinners righteous by faith, not by our works, not by our earnings or our doings, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, let's look at Psalm chapter 32, starting in verse 1. And thankfully, there's only 11 verses in this psalm, and I only have seven points this morning. <laughs> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you. Excuse me. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I think I heard an infant over here giving a shout out when I was reading there. Amen. Out of the mouth of babes. So here's our big idea this morning. God graciously offers forgiveness of sin to guilty sinners through faith and confession. And those who experience it have great joy. God graciously offers forgiveness of sin to guilty sinners through faith and confession. And those who experience it have great joy. Now think back for a moment. The moment you first experienced the sweetness of God's forgiveness. 
when you became a believer in Jesus Christ and when you felt God's loving embrace and you experienced all your sins forgiven and God declared you righteous simply by faith. You came to God recognizing that you did something wrong, namely sin. You sinned against the holy God and you realize that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the one and only Savior who can take away sins. How sweet was that moment? For me, it was December 12th, 1998, with my hands up and tears rolling down my cheek. I experienced the loving embrace of Almighty God and who had become my father. And I had become his son, his child, and I wept like a baby. And first I cried out of much pain that was stored up in my heart. Guilt, pain, shame, just a ball of darkness that I was holding inside. And tears just came rolling down my cheeks like streams of water. And those tears went from sorrow to joyful tears in that holy moment. And I had been changed forever in that moment. It felt so good and so cleansing to me. I felt new. I felt accepted. I felt like I came alive. I got, like I got born again, and I did. Like I became a new creation, and I did. And I didn't do anything to earn it. I experienced the, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming my life, the forgiveness and the freedom that he gives to guilty sinners. And I haven't been able to stop talking about it, and I'm, I'm not ever going to stop talking about it. And that's why I'm a preacher because I'm going to tell everybody about how good God is and how loving he is and how merciful he is if they'll just come to him while there's time and take refuge in him and find mercy and grace at the cross. My first point this morning is very simple. The forgiven sinner is joyful. The forgiven sinner is joyful. There's a beatitude that this psalm starts with. Now, the book of Psalms starts with the beatitude, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This is Psalm 1. This is a righteous man who's walking upright in Psalm 1. But in Psalm 32, this is a righteous man who has sinned significantly and been forgiven by God thoroughly, namely David. And we need to have categories for righteous sinners because this psalm gives us one for righteous sinners. David was a righteous, a godly man. This is a psalm of David and theologians rightly speculate, I believe, that this was, he's referring to this time in his life when he had sinned against God in having, committing adultery with Bathsheba, trying to cover up that sin and having Uh, her husband Uriah put on the front lines of battle and killed. And he describes the experience. And he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And and his response to that is Psalm 51. He cried out for mercy. He appealed to the mercy and the grace of God. And he cried out for a clean heart, for God to renew a a right spirit within him, to, to not cast him away from his presence. And David was all, he was focused on getting right Here, though he had done much damage this way, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so so David, he was confronted by his sin, and he experienced the forgiveness and the cleansing of God simply by faith. And he tells us, he tells us how he experienced that as he said he would in Psalm 51. He said, you know, if, if, you'll, if you'll forgive me and you'll cleanse me, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So here's David doing that very thing, telling others about, and through this song, through this psalm that is to be sung with joy about the forgiveness that God offers to guilty sinners. There is a joy that comes with forgiveness. There is a joy in salvation. David prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. 
knowing that the relationship has been restored, that the, 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 sev- the sin that severs us and cuts us off from having communion with God has been dealt with, the deepest problem, the guilt of our past, the things that we can't cover up enough, we can't cover enough, enough with our intellectual righteousness, our works righteousness, our theological righteousness and all the forms of righteousness, our family righteousness, I'm gonna be a great dad or a great mom. All these forms of righteousness that we try to cover up like Adam and Eve as fig leaves to cover our shame and our guilt. And God offers us his righteousness by faith and it produces joy in the heart and the life of the forgiven sinner. Blessed is the term, it means happy or blessed or fortunate is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, David uses four different terms to describe his erring ways, his his rebellion against God, his straying from God. The first one is transgression, okay? Transgression means to to trespass a boundary. There's a boundary, okay? The Ten Commandments were the boundary for David. Don't commit adultery. He crossed it, right? Don't bear false witness. Covered it up. He crossed it. Don't don't murder. He crossed it. He was crossing boundaries that God had placed that were not to be crossed for the sake of human flourishing, for the sake of love. And he had crossed those boundaries and he had damaged people's lives, including his own. Another uh, word that's used here is sin, and that simply means to miss the mark, okay? What's the mark for us? The mark for us is the glory of God, to reflect the glory of God, to render glory to God by, by loving him and loving people and doing good. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And another term that the Bible uses is this word iniquity. And this is described as theologians as the inner moral distortion of the fallen nature. It's not just just that we, we do things that are wrong. There is something, a part of our nature that is wrong, our sinful nature. And we need some deep renovation. We need some change that we can't bring about ourselves. that only God himself can, can change the human heart. Because you can lock a person up for years and years. And their heart just grow harder and harder. But only God can touch the human heart and change the human heart. And take the terrorist Saul and make him a, a loving preacher of the gospel and 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 david also describes his rebellion here as as deceit in whom there is no deceit and this is the idea you know this has to do with like not being honest and concealing and covering up the sin that was in his life and so sin must be properly addressed charles spurgeon said this he said note the three words so often used to denote our disobedience transgression sin and iniquity are the three-headed dog dog uh, at the gates of hell but our glorious lord has silenced his barkings forever against his own believing ones the trinity of sin is overcome by the trinity of heaven amen and so the joyful, the, the forgiven sinner is joyful. The forgiven sinner is also honest. Notice that second part of uh, verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, the forgiven, the, for, the one who's forgiven is also the one who's come to grips with the reality that he sinned against the holy God. Now, those of us who've experienced recovery ministry, recovery programs, the 12 steps, know that these are essential steps for anybody who's going to to experience freedom and recovery. There has to be a, 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 a putting away of that denial that there's a problem. There has to be a coming to grips and and an honesty that, that I've done wrong and I've hurt some people and I need to to take responsibility for those things that I've done wrong and quit trying to justify it, blame, complain, and explain away our sins. 
This is what Adam and Eve did, right? Adam, Adam with one statement, he, he accuses both God and his wife. He said, that woman you gave to me. I mean, that's, that's slick right there. That's a smooth one. He's like, okay, the woman that you gave me, right? You see that? You catch that, guys? Husbands, let's avoid that. That blame shifting, that's our tendency when we're, when we're confronted with our sin. We want to defend ourselves and defend our own righteousness rather than simply confess. I mean, I know there's, for me, there's been times as a believer. Now, I, I, I shared my, my first experience when I became a Christian. But since I've been a Christian, there's been a number of times when I've had to get honest with myself. And I've had to get honest with God. And I've needed other brothers and sisters to speak the truth and love and to call me out. And my wife has been one of the best people at that and helping me see when I'm not walking in love or walking in the spirit. My kids also help me. And I've, I've walked with other brothers and sisters who have spoken the truth and love throughout my Christian walk. And that's helped me to be honest with myself, to face the reality that that I've fallen short, and because there's mercy and grace to be found by those who are honest with themselves and honest with God, we can come with confidence that we're going to be met with it. We don't have to keep hiding. We don't have to keep trying to figure it out and fix it ourselves when we've just broken things and broken relationships. And so we got to get honest with ourselves and honest with God. The Bible calls this walking in the light. Walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are children of the light, Paul says. This is who we are now. You're children of the light, so walk in it. This is who God's made you as a new creation, as children of God. You're not children of the darkness any longer. Ephesians 5.8. Ladies, y'all will, will be there in a few weeks. Ephesians 5, 8, right? We're children of light, so we're to walk in the light. And that, that involves honesty before God and before others. The next thing here that I want to highlight is the hiding of our sin leads to misery. And David recounts his own experience in this. He's, he's teaching transgressors God's ways. He's teaching those other sinners, like himself, the, that there's a way out, that you don't have to bear the burden of it all yourself. You don't have to figure it out yourself. You don't have to fix it yourself. You can't. You can't. You need to confess. And this is what he said. When I kept silent, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Notice these descriptions that David is, is, is using to describe, which, which theologians estimate was close to a year's time between his adultery with Bathsheba and his confrontation with Nathan the prophet and him repenting. About a year's time. So he had lived in a state of guilt and shame and, and, and trying to cover up his sin and trying to fix it himself for way too long, if that's the case. And he describes that his bones were wasting away. He was groaning all day long. Anybody else ever groan when you think about your sin and your failure, or maybe how you hurt somebody or said something, did something. Oh, that he describes the heavy hand of God that was upon him. Your hand was heavy upon me. I don't want that. I want the uplifting hand of God, right? But this was a mercy to David. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer in August. In Dallas, Texas, we can all relate to this right here. The heat of summer will dehydrate you if you're outside sweating. Many folks are getting dehydrated. I've been the most parched that I've been, that I can remember in a long time this summer, being outside, working out, and just sweat dripping. Because the heat of summer will zap the strength out of you. 
And also at the end of uh, Psalm 32 and verse 10, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. David experienced these sorrows. David fell into this category. Charles Spurgeon said this, God's finger can crush us. What must his hand be? And that pressing heavily and continuously under the terrors of conscience. Men have little rest by night. For the grim thoughts of day dog them to their chambers and haunt their dreams. Or else they lie awake in a cold sweat of dread. God's hand is very helpful when it uplifts. But it is awful when it presses down. Better a world on the shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on the heart like David. Spurgeon also says, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. And so David found himself in a drought, a drought, a spiritual drought that was induced by his own sin. And as I said a couple weeks ago, this, this often happens. And, and now this isn't always the case when we go through hard times or dry times. It's not always as a result of our sin. Sometimes it's just because we live in a fallen, broken world. And others do wrong. Or we're just going through hard times. We're just going through trials. But in this case, David's describing a self-induced trial that, that he brought on himself. And it affected him mentally, internally, emotionally, and it affected him physically. Psychologists have a term for this, and it's psychosomatic, okay? And John Stott highlights that long before the term psychosomatic had been invented, David tells us how his tortured conscience resulted in alarming physical conditions. He had this internal stress that was affecting his body. And the Bible has lots of language that, that talks about this, about internal stress of sin affecting our body, like bitterness, that uh, envy that rots the bones, or, or bitterness and, um, that's like a, you know, a bitter root. Uh, uh, and, and there's a number of different terms. And, and so sin affects us. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. And that's why in James chapter 5, when James says, if in, you know, he says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For, for the, the prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? And, and, and it says that if, if one has sinned, if one has sinned, if, there's, if sin is connected to the sickness, it will be forgiven, right? And, and God will intervene and God will show up. And so he tells the elders to anoint with oil, to pray over the sick. And so this is very basic for us. We all know this. We all know this. And, and, and sometimes I've, I, I feel like I need to apologize for sharing basic elementary truths of, of, of the scripture. And, and I shouldn't because we all need to hear this because none of us are graduates, graduates of grace, None of us grow out of our need to use the, the Christian bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, that, you, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We all experience a point even after we become Christians, even when, we, when we've been walking with the Lord for many years, we, we experience moments where we feel bad because we said something or did something that didn't represent Jesus well and we hurt somebody because of our unloving actions and what do we do with it when we find ourselves in that place do we just carry the burden and just continue to groan and continue to let our strength be zapped out of us and continue continue to mope around and beat ourselves up until we until we pay ourselves back for all the wrong that we've done no god's given us a way out he's given us a way to deal with the stress and it's confession it's acknowledging we've we've blown it We've done wrong. It's dangerous to conceal sin. One theologian, John Doe, says that sin is a serpent, and he that covers sin does not keep it warm. He who covers sin does but keep it warm, that it may sting the more fiercely and disperse the venom and malignity, therefore, thereof, the more effectively, effectually. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them 
will obtain mercy. This is what God calls us to. This is a normal practice. Why did Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us? Because he knew that his disciples would need that. And that confession would be a regular part of the lives of his followers. Because we need ongoing cleansing and forgiveness that damages our relationships with God. Nevertheless, the Christian is in a place of being forgiven by God. Ephesians 1, 7. We have been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been accepted. We've been declared righteous. But relationally, we, we, we affect our relationship with God, our communion with God, and our relationship with others. When Peter preached to the, the thousands of Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, and they were convicted, they were convicted of their sin, and they said, what must we do? He said, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ Jesus the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That he may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And so there was this, uh, this connection between repentance and refreshing that came to the people of God. That, that, that would come, that does come when we confess and we forsake our sin. There's, there's times of refreshing when we've been in drought and we've been, we've been, we felt distant in our relationship with God. There's times of refreshing that he wants to refresh our souls with that we can step into by simply coming to him in faith and saying, you know what, God, you're right about this. And I, th I think I missed it here. Next, God's forgiveness comes through confession and trust. Notice David's testimony here. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you. Okay, he came into an agreement with God about his sin. I acknowledged it to you. And, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice the gospel packed within this verse. God forgave. God forgave. This is the message that Christians are to proclaim everywhere. In Luke 24, Jesus said, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in all the nations. We have good news to share. There's forgiveness. And David, long before the Messiah did come and bear the sin of the world, David was celebrating this truth that God does forgive sins. And the, the, the saints in the Old Testament were looking forward to the Messiah who would come, the sin-bearing servant in Isaiah 53 that was read earlier. They were looking forward to that, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And we look back to what Jesus has done. He came to the cross and he died in our place. God bless you. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. We confess to God for forgiveness. We don't have to go to a priest or a pastor. We go straight to God and confess our sins. Jesus is our mediator. We go straight to God to confess our sins. Yet we're taught in James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Sometimes... To get free, to get healed, to get whole, to get those grave clothes off, you need to open up and share the burden that you're carrying with other believers who can speak the gospel truth over you. Like Lazarus, who was dead in the grave for four days, and Jesus with one word says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came up out of the grave, okay? He was wrapped up, all right? And then you know what he said? He said to those around him, loose him. Loose him. Okay, he, he came alive. Jesus made him alive. But then he says to those around him, take those grave clothes off of him. And when we confess our sins one to another and pray for one another and speak the gospel truth over one another in love, it's like we're helping one another get those grave clothes off. Like, man, quit walking around with that, man. You don't have to jump like that anymore. 
All right, you're free now. You're forgiven and you're free. The gospel provides both for us. Forgiveness and freedom. Let's not settle for just, just forgiveness. We are free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Yet let us not minimize the beauty and the sweetness of God's forgiveness that we all need. Because it is wonderful. And David is celebrating it. He said, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You see, this is what David was doing when he was confessing his sin to God, when he was running to God. He was hiding before, but then he was running to hide in God, to take refuge in God. And he says, he celebrates this truth. Steadfast love, hesed, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And this is what Paul emphasizes uh, about how we're made right with God in Romans chapter 4. When he's explaining the gospel and how we experience being made right and God accounting us as righteous, he points back to Abraham who believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he points back to David and he quotes this psalm, Psalm 32. David celebrated this gospel truth. And they came in faith. They both came to God in faith. And, and of course, David's describing his confession as well, that there was confession and faith there. He didn't earn salvation or forgiveness from God. He just responded and acknowledged, I've sinned and I'm trusting you God to deal with it and so he says in here here he's teaching transgressors God's ways he's instructing others who find themselves caught in that same position he says therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him and so pray prayers of confession now the sooner, the better. The, so, the sooner after you sin and you feel guilty and, and you're struggling, the sooner, the better. And I, I think that's, that's also a part of maturity in Christ, growing up and, and maturing as a believer, that, that you're quicker to repent rather than letting long periods of time just, just waste your life away. John Piper says that confession to God is not merely admitting our sin as real, like, yeah, my, I'm, I'm a sinner or I sinned, but, but also rejecting our sin is repulsive. So there's both that are involved. It's possible to confess our sin and not repent of it, to confess but not forsake. Or, you know, we looked at Saul. We talked about King Saul as that. He confessed, oh, I've sinned, all right? And his sin didn't seem as significant as King David's did, who committed adultery and murder, right? But, but here we have an example of, of false repentance or worldly sorrow and godly sorrow and true repentance. David acknowledged his sin and he was grieved over it. He was grieved ultimately uh, that he had, he had affected his relationship with God. He was more concerned about that. Saul was more concerned about his honor before men. He, was, he tells the elders of Israel, hey, honor me now. Uh, okay, I know I messed up, Samuel, but hey, honor me now. He, was more, he had more of a worldly sorrow over his sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to life. Notice this truth also that he celebrates here. God is a hiding place for those who take refuge in him. This is beautiful. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I think the New King James says songs of deliverance. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And then Selah. Selah. Now, theologians, a lot of theologians think that just is simply like pause and think on that. Right? Now, also, there's, there's some who suggest it could be like a, a musical transition going on there because this is a song, right? So, okay, psh, we're going to change, change the tempo or change the beat or we're going to add this or whatever. Some dynamic in here. You are my hiding place for me. David experienced trying to hide from God. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. We can't win a game of hide and seek when we're playing with God because he sees everything. 
though he said, where are you, to Adam and Eve in the garden, it wasn't because he had no idea where they were and what happened. He was giving them an opportunity to respond. David was hiding from God in vain, trying to hide from God. It's vain to try to hide from God and try to fix things in our own strength, with our own understanding, with our own resources, with our own righteousness. Because all our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And he offers us his righteousness. David says, you're my hiding place. You're the one who preserves me from trouble. You're the one who surrounds me with shouts of deliverance, with songs of deliverance. David is communicating that God is for him. God is his defender. God is his protector. God is his shelter, his mighty fortress. He's a hiding place. Reminded of an old song I used to lead uh, in worship. I have found myself a hiding place. I have found myself a secret place. In the shelter of almighty's care. Do, 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 do. I forgot the rest of it. And I will run to the hiding place. And I will run to the hiding place. Draw me ever closer to look upon your face. I will run to the hiding place. So if you're here today and you've been hiding from God, Change that. Change your direction. Run to him and find shelter in him. Hide in him. Let him take care of the trouble that you have found yourself in. Let him shelter you through the storm that you're going through. Let him surround you with shouts of deliverance, songs of deliverance, because he delivers his people. And he gives his people songs of deliverance. And he surrounds his people with songs of deliverance. Because our God saves. He delivers. God also promises guidance to his people. Now here in verse 8 and 9, in verse 8, David, the the language of the psalm changes. Okay, notice, notice how it goes to the first person here. It says, I will instruct you. Okay, and that's because God is speaking here through David, right? God is speaking, saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You see, in this psalm, we have not only assurance of forgiveness, and, 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 but we also have assurance of guidance. God promises to guide his people, to instruct his people. And so what we must do is run to him in prayer and depend upon him. Let him guide us. We must have this posture of yielding our lives, yielding control of our lives or the illusion of control in our lives that we have and let him call the shots. Let him be Lord, master, and call the shots over our lives. Because he promises, I'm going to instruct you. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. Some of us get so worked up over like, what do I do? Where do I go? And sometimes we're so preoccupied with that when we need, we need to experience God's forgiveness. We're like, we're focused on the next job or the relationship, but our relationship with God is in shambles. And this needs to be addressed first. All right, and the two go together. You know, we experience that re- restored relationship with God, and then we're able to walk in this Him guiding us and leading us. We get back in step with Him, right? And He keeps us from falling off the cliffs and falling into the pits. Now, I like this. This is kind of, kind of a humbling uh, analogy that He uses, but He says, "Don't be like a horse or a mule." What's the point here? Mules are stubborn, and they're stupid, right? And sometimes you can't tell the difference. Is it because they just they don't they don't understand, or are they just strong-willed and stubborn, and they're not going to respond to the leadership? 
right? And so he's saying, don't be like that. Have this posture of yielding. Have this posture of yielding. Because with God, there's steadfast love that surrounds the one who trusts him, who's yielded to him. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have without, without understanding, they must be curbed with bit and bridle or they will not stay near you. God wants to instruct us and lead us without him having to discipline us. Now, he's committed to disciplining us as a loving father or mother does in, in training up and raising up children. There's loving discipline that's involved in raising up children. That's a loving thing to do. New Testament instructs us in this. And God, as a loving father, does this with his people. He did this with David. David experienced the discipline of God, but God wasn't through with him. God was merciful and gracious to him. And that's my last point. God's gracious forgiveness leads us to extravagant worship. It ends on a glorious note here. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, O you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When I first got saved, I came to Christ at a church that was full of former drug addicts, folks who had been in prison, come off the streets, right? And I was actually one of those guys who came off the streets and a former drug addict, and when we would sing to God in our worship, there was this exuberance, this clapping of hands and crying and kneeling and, and just this, this is kind of like, I don't care what anybody else thinks, Jesus has saved me. And if you've ever been in a prison where there are Christians worshiping in prison, you, you, I've experienced it there too. And when people are incarcerated, but they've experienced the, the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel, and they're worshiping God, and they're so grateful to be in the presence of God. You see, when we experience this forgiveness, and we know we've been forgiven of so much, it leads to extravagant worship. Where we don't care about what, we're not going to be shackled by the opinions of people and let that hinder our worship being expressed to God. And I can't help think of a, well, actually, I'll, I'll go to this in a minute. Um, Spurgeon says this about these this, this many sorrows that surround the wicked. The wicked have a hive of wasp around them, many sorrows, but we have a swarm of bees storing up honey for us. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here's an example of a woman who had been forgiven of much and experienced extravagant worship in response to Jesus's grace of forgiveness. She had, she had poured out her life savings upon Jesus. She, she was undignified before everybody and poured out her life savings. She was in tears and she was wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. She was giving up her savings. And this is what Jesus said. The religious were looking on it and they were like, man, this guy, he, he must not know what's going on here. Um, and, and they were looking down upon this. The, the religious community was looking down upon this experience. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those words are spoken over every child of God. Every saint, every person who is a Christian have those words spoken over us. This is true about you as a Christian. You are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? I'll tell you who he is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He's the Messiah. He's the God-man who came and never sinned and offered up his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the risen Savior who died and was risen from the grave and he's coming back. To judge the living and the dead. He is Jesus and he has authority to forgive sin. So we must run to Jesus for refuge, for forgiveness, for restoration. And do so with confidence that you and I will be met with mercy and grace. The mercy and the grace of God's forgiveness. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Mercy for the past sins that we have committed. And grace, grace to enable us now in the present to be who God's called us to be and to do what he's called us to do. Let us be courageously truthful with God sooner than later to avoid the painful consequences of sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And lastly, keep in step with the Holy Spirit's leading to walk in victory over sin. You see, a part of the good news for us as Christians is not just that we get pardoned, and we do. And that is good news indeed, and I never want to minimize that. We should celebrate that. That should set our hearts ablaze. If you were on death row, and you were about to be taken out, and you got released because somebody stepped in your place and took your penalty for you, you would be ecstatic, and you would be grateful, and you would be loyal to that person who paid your fine So we get pardoned, but we also get power from the presence of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who leads us in victory over sin, who leads us to say yes to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, who leads us into the truth, who convicts of sin, who gives us power over sin so that we don't have to be dominated by sin's control in our lives. You've been set free, saints. You've been forgiven, saints. You've been brought into fellowship with Almighty God. And so let's worship Him. Let's sing. Let's pour our hearts out to Him. If you need to do business with God and run to Him and acknowledge sin, do it. You can do it at any moment. There's mercy and grace now to be had for you now. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not come near you, David said. But now... Therefore, let the godly offer prayer to God now. So let's do that.